Welcome to today's Fiji Hemont podcast. In today's podcast, chaired by Mohamed Moti, nurse Sarah Henshaw and patient advocates Jack Aiello, Cindy Chimaluski and Jim O'Mell discuss their experiences as myeloma patients, in particular highlighting the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and the role of patient advocates. Okay, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Mohamed Moti. I'm a professor of hematology at the Sorbonne University uh, and St. Antoine Hospital in Paris in France. And it is my a great pleasure to welcome you all to this uh, uh, wonderful uh, broadcast, uh, we, which we call like sort of a post-COMI discussion. And for this post-COMI, as you all know, this has been the seventh International Congress on Controversies in Multiple Myeloma, which has been really a fascinating, amazing event a few weeks ago. And as part of this Congress, actually, the uh, special awards went to uh, patient advocates uh, and uh, we're glad having uh, uh, Ms. Cindy Chimilevsky, uh, Mr. Jack Aiello, uh, Dr. Mr. Jim Omel, uh, who are joining us on behalf of the uh, patient advocates. Uh, I'm also very uh, honored having uh, Mrs. Sarah Henshaw, uh, who got the uh, Nurses uh, uh, Award on behalf of the nurses. And this is for the amazing and huge work that has been done for the benefit of multiple myeloma patients across the globe during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So thank you all for taking the time uh, and for joining and uh, thank you for accepting to share your experience. So my, my first question, and we'll do it in a very classical manner. So ladies first, uh, and I, I'll start with the most senior lady, uh, Cindy. Uh, uh, as a patient advocate, uh, maybe you can share your experience with us uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. It, it was really, really scary being a myeloma patient and a myeloma patient advocate during the pandemic. I mean, we in the beginning, we really just didn't know what to do. And I'm part of many online patient communities. So uh, I felt the fear there and people were just locking themselves in the house, um, choosing to skip appointments, not knowing whether or not they... Um, should be even going into hospitals. I, I remember particularly one, one of my um, friends who was enrolled in a clinical trial. She had to travel from North Carolina to New York, and she had this horrible decision to make. Do you go on a plane in the middle of a pandemic into New York City where it was the height of the pandemic or do you risk your spot in the clinical trial? And luckily, all the companies, the FDA, everyone worked very, very quickly to make those types of modifications. But we, we were scared. You know, we just didn't want to go out of the house. And we, but we were very thankful too, because from the very, very beginning, um, the doctors, the myeloma doctors would come and advise us almost on a weekly basis on what was happening, what should be, we be doing? Is it okay to eat groceries that we bring in from the outside? Shall we be 
just everything. So we were thankful to have those updates from the various organizations, the myeloma crowd, the MMRF, patient power, the IMF, everyone chipped in and, you know, tried to keep us as up to date as possible. Jack, do you share the same experience? Any thoughts uh, on the last few months? I do. Um, I think we all went through the kind of the same thing that Cindy mentioned. One of the things I do is facilitate our large San Francisco Bay Area myeloma support group meeting where we meet monthly and we would have typically 50 or 60 folks, myeloma patients and caregivers attend our meetings. But through the International Myeloma Foundation, the IMF, they were quick to provide us with resources to be able to conduct these meetings virtually, whether the, the resources, something called GoToMeeting and then subsequently became Zoom. And so we never missed a beat. Since March of 2020, we've been conducting our meetings virtually. Uh, we just had one this past uh, Saturday, 14 months later. Um, we had uh, 70 folks attend our, our meeting virtually uh, this past Saturday. And we had a great speaker. And one of the things I find with the virtual meetings is that I've invited uh, Dr. Myeloma specialists from different states, New York, Arizona, Florida, have all been accommodating and able to speak to our groups on a Saturday morning, our time. And it's worked out well to a point where I polled our group and I said, if you only could do one, which would you continue to do, virtual meetings or go back to person-to-person -person meetings? And about two-thirds of them selected uh, virtual meetings. So we'll probably do a combination of those going forward. So COVID has certainly had an impact on our support group meetings. Well, yeah, I think this is really amazing. And you're highlighting something which is really important. And one may wonder how could we have done it uh, 20 years ago or 25 years yeah. ago without all of these IT digital uh, tools. And because obviously we're all missing, you know, the in-person contacts, but actually the interaction, the connection uh, went rather well and uh, the uh, communication continued despite the hard time. And I believe that has been really crucial to all patients. Jim, what, what's your perspective and uh, your experience over the last few months? Thank you, Mohammed. Uh, my experience is certainly very similar to Cindy's and Jack's. And my reaction to COVID was just like Cindy, it was fear. Just total fear that this virus, which was so unknown to humans, uh, could infect all of us so silently and quickly. Um, most of my support group felt the same thing. We had been meeting monthly for many, many years. We had to go to a virtual meeting, as Jack has explained, and it was certainly new to us. And we, we had a lot of help from the IMF to, to run those meetings. But back to the fear factor, COVID uh, is, is especially bad for hematologic patients. Our immune systems are at risk anyway and then this horrible disease is just uh, frightening. Vaccination in the United States has certainly helped us a lot. Uh, unfortunately, heme patients don't always mount a good antibody response. 
but still, um, many of us do. We, we're, we're feeling better than we felt uh, many months ago. Personally, I had to literally give up Christmas. We didn't even meet as a family. And I had to experience yeah. my father dying in a nursing home and I couldn't get in to see him. So oh. COVID was real, it was frightening. And finally, the weight of this horrible um, infection is, is starting to lift from the United States and hopefully the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I, I think, thank you, Jim. Uh, uh, I'm really very, very grateful and we feel privileged having this discussion because you're tackling really uh, the most difficult part of uh, uh, this uh, pandemic uh, where about fear, about losing uh, beloved ones. And uh, I really feel sorry for uh, what you had to go through and many uh, patients and colleagues and friends and unknown people, you know, who not, went across the globe. And uh, I think you, you, you're highlighting something which uh, is about the immunosuppressed myeloma patient. And unfortunately, intrinsically, the disease is characterized by a status of immune suppression. And I think everybody would agree that we teach medical students every day that multiple myeloma uh, increases the risk of opportunistic infections and so on. So, but then also, all our therapeutic interventions, especially the use of dexamethasone, are increasing this uh, immunosuppression. Uh, and this is why uh, we have to admit that uh, multiple myeloma patients uh, have paid the high price of this uh, pandemic. Uh, and when we look to the scientific literature, whether you consider publications from the United States, from the UK, from Italy, from Spain, from France, well, the numbers were roughly the same, exactly the same, plus or minus 1%. The numbers were exactly the same. And uh, this has been really very sad. So from uh, the nurse's perspective, Sarah, I think you've been extremely active. You're based in the UK. You're very active with Maloma UK, but also in general. And you've been active for many years. And I think your reaction after the first days of the uh, uh, pandemic uh, has been announced have been uh, quite amazing to try to protect and uh, defend the patient. So maybe you can give us a sort of a summary of uh, how, how did you handle this, Sarah? Um, so I think my presentation, when I was accepting the award, I included a slide that showed the increase in activity of nurse specialists generally with email contact, telephone contact um, of a patient. And it went through the roof within the UK during our three lockdowns. And also in the UK, um, our government had this habit of changing criteria um, and then getting that information out to the patients and making sure they understood what they were meant to be doing from the point of view of should they be isolating, should they be going to work, were they advised to work from home and making sure that we were keeping up to date with the information to be able to give that to the patients was very difficult within the first few months of the pandemic. And I think Myeloma UK within the UK, which is the equivalent of the IMF, 
were absolutely brilliant. They very, very quickly updated an area of their website that was specifically generated for COVID information for UK patients to access to keep up to date with all this information. And as healthcare professionals, we did that too. I think one of the things that we very quickly had to adapt to was we had a group of vulnerable patients as all of the patient, my patient colleagues here have just explained that were frightened of coming to the hospital because of the infections. So we very, very quickly had to adapt our clinics so that patients didn't come into hospital for face-to-face consultations. So we switched over to telephone, virtual consultations, and even video consultations in areas where technology was available to be able to do this. That was quite difficult to start off with um, because historically in myeloma, I'm sure Mohammed will agree with me here, clinicians and nurses have been very much in the habit of seeing people face-to-face to be able to assess symptoms and they feel more accurately assess symptoms face-to-face. Um, so we had to adapt the way that we assessed patients, particularly from a pain assessment point of view. Um, one of the things that we started to use a little bit more heavily is something called the MyPOS questionnaire, which is a myeloma-specific patient outcome score so it's self-reported by patients um, and they can report all their symptoms and they can think before their telephone appointment with the consultant or with the nurse or the pharmacist or whoever was calling them about their symptoms over the last few weeks leading up to that appointment so it helped people to actually group together how they were feeling before their telephone appointment because we all know what it's like you go to clinic you see your doctor And as you're walking out the room, there's usually something that you go, I didn't mention that. So you turn around and you go and sit back down in the chair and talk to the doctor about that. Well, that's hard to do over the telephone. So it's nice to have that structure beforehand. So there's some of the things that we developed quite quickly and changed. The other thing is my patient colleagues have mentioned is the support group. So the support group was a massive thing during the pandemic and the patients really relished that and needed the support of the healthcare professionals at the hospital. So we also quickly switched over to virtual Zoom support groups so that we could still have face-to-face contact in the virtual setting to be able to offer support. And I must admit the attendance at the support group went up because of the virtual consultation rather than the face-to-face that we had in one of our Maggie's centres which is a cancer centre that we have in the UK where people can go for free for a cup of tea and things like that so yeah there was quite a few things that we changed at the beginning of the pandemic and it was a massive learning curve the only way I can describe it is um, back when I first started in post as myeloma nurse specialist 14 years ago that was a huge learning curve and it was the exact same learning curve at the start of the pandemic for us to get to the stage that we're at now where patients are feeling more comfortable and confident about their reviews, their treatments, whether they're having treatment, whether it's being paused, etc. No, this is really amazing. Thank you so much for these great efforts and for developing these tools. And obviously, uh, you mentioned the great work of Maloma UK. We mentioned the IMF, but I'm aware that many other Maloma advocacy groups, whether in France, the AF3M, in Belgium, MIMU, uh, in Finland, in Croatia, in Saudi Arabia, in Israel. Uh, we have also the MMRF in uh, the US, many state-based uh, 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 support uh, group, uh, a group in uh, Lebanon. I mean, I, I had a huge list of contacts and everybody did really uh, an amazing uh, job translating documents, uh, sharing, you know, uh, some advice, uh, sharing 
the right advice, or I would say a reasonable advice, because as you mentioned, uh, all of you in the beginning, we didn't know anything. We had to just mm. dive in this pandemic uh, like a sort of in a blinded fashion and try to empirically uh, guess how uh, to behave and so on. So, Cindy, from a practical point of view, maybe uh, you can share with us uh, today, after 14 months or 15 months of the pandemic, uh, what are your, uh, you know, what are the good and bad things, I would say, and uh, uh, any, any message here, any, uh, any project you would like to set up based on the uh, learning from the pandemic? Yeah, you know, you always have to like make lemonade out of lemons. And, you know, in the beginning, it was hard to do. It was hard to see anything good about the pandemic. But as time went on, I, I really think we have some learnings that we can do. Just like Jack said, you know, having that virtual option for support groups it, it is a wonderful thing now that we have that structure in because even post pandemic, if we return or when we return to in-person groups, I'm sure all of us will have virtual options for those patients who can't travel, who are too sick to travel or just don't have the transportation. Uh, I, I also think, you know, some of the safety protocols that hospitals have instituted and everyone has instituted, you know, sanitizing, you know, even on the airplanes, I, I, I think some of those protocols are going to continue in, in into the future. Um, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, and just continue. I, I was amazed at how quickly we were able to give out important information. Like, you know, in this age of technology, it, it was important. Um, I, I, I still worry about the patients who have myeloma who are not technologically savvy. Those are the patients that are really isolated and by themselves and maybe didn't benefit from some of the things that were happening. So that, that's always been my goal, you know, in the future is to build on what we have but to try to reach those populations that are hard to reach, those hard to reach populations, because they were hard to reach during COVID too. Yeah, I, I, isolation and feeling lonely and abandoned is really uh, a, a terrible feeling. And I think Jack, you alluded to this, uh, to the uh, important impact of support group and uh, staying together. Uh, what kind of request would you uh, receive or you have received? Uh, uh, what are the things that, you know, people, uh, fellow patients shared with you and how did you react to this? So one of the things that's occurring here in the States and maybe in Europe as well is that several organizations are doing antibody tests for cancer patients, specifically myeloma patients, to see whether the vaccine is effective or not. And so I know I've gone through those tests and a number of my friends in the support groups have gone through the tests. And one of the requests I get is, what the heck do these results mean that they're getting? 
um, they get a number and or not a number and and uh, or just a negative or a positive and what to do with the results. And I don't think doctors, let alone patients, know what to do with the results these days. So I'm looking forward to getting a better understanding of the efficacy of the vaccine. I'm, I'm fully expecting there to be booster shots, not only for the general population, but especially uh, for cancer patients, so that we need to keep our eye on the ball in terms of when these become available and to make certain that we put as much priority in getting those as we have in getting the vaccine. Um, so I, uh, I think as a continuing thing, I, I thought what was fascinating when Cindy talked about the, you know, we've learned to be a little bit more careful about washing hands and even wearing masks that the cases of flu went way down uh, this year as a result of that. And I think as a, as a society, we've learned more about how important it is to uh, keep our hands clean and, uh, and, and, and washed and such. So I think there will be uh, lasting effects from this whole episode of the vaccine uh, with uh, COVID. So I, I think, uh, of course, it can take us hours and hours to discuss the vaccination issues, the implications, how does it work, and how can we make it better. Uh, I, I think my, my message as a physician is definitely all patients need to get vaccinated. That is the general recommendation. I do not have any preference for this vaccine or this other vaccine or this brand. Just take whatever vaccine is available. Obviously, there is some uncertainty about how a myeloma immune system would react uh, because we know the immunosuppressive uh, status of uh, multiple myeloma. Nevertheless, there be there can be only uh, benefit, I think, of the vaccine. And and here, I think, uh, Jack, you alluded to uh, this positive aspect. We learned that by just following some uh, cleaning, washing hands rules, uh, we can decrease the incidence of the uh, classical uh, annual flu. And I think we had also other learnings, and I'd like to, to hear from you, Jim, uh, whether you share the same experience. Uh, I mean, we have, for instance, decreased the dosage or even discontinued dexamethasone for many patients. We have even uh, uh, extended the delay between two infusion of antibodies. And actually, we didn't see uh, dramatic or bad reactions. Uh, and I know you are also a physician, uh, so uh, is this something uh, positive we should take from COVID and rethink uh, our therapeutic strategies and maybe, for instance, when it comes to dexamethasone, try to get rid of these high big dosage, which is a source of many side effects, and patients are really struggling with these side effects. I don't think you'll find too many patients that will be against lowering their dexamethasone uh, uh, dosage or schedule. Um, I am going to add on to your question or, or respond to your question to Cindy about the good and bad things that have come through the pandemic. And one of them that is extremely exciting is RNA technology now to be used in cancer treatment. Uh, 
we have uh, we've had experience that we know that microRNA works. If we can find the tumor antigen that is really specific to what we're trying to, to attack, we know that messenger RNA uh, can be used to attack that, that antigen and, and form a successful antibodies. Uh, all of the money that was spent in uh, research in this uh, COVID uh, infection translates into effective uh, research for tumor uh, cancer vaccinations. We know, for instance, that as we have new products that come forward, they will be tested as vaccinations instead of gene therapy uh, evaluations, which is a huge thing with the FDA. We're much more likely to get approvals for uh, vaccination uh, testing than gene therapy type testing. So that's a big outcome of the, the COVID. Um, microRNA technology has in, for cancer has really been going on since the 1990s. The biggest problem was how do we get that antigen into the body without it immediately being um, uh, killed because microRNA is, is very fragile, but the lipid, lipidization of these small little proteins have really revolutionized, revolutionized uh, protein injection therapy or vaccination therapy. And that's gonna work with cancer vaccines. So I have a lot of optimism about new immunization for cancer as a result of this horrible COVID. As Cindy said, it's turning uh, lemons into lemonade and the, the future is quite bright. And as you said, Mohammed, unfortunately, um, myeloma patients don't always mount a good immune response. If you think about it, myeloma is technically a cancer of the immune system itself. Uh, we talk about it being a blood cancer and a, and a bone marrow cancer, but it's also a cancer of our immune system. So we need to continue to be very real. I mean, we're not out of the woods with COVID, especially myeloma uh, patients. Things are better, but uh, we can look at things optimistically, not only for COVID, but also for cancer treatment in general because of immunization therapy. Now, I, I fully share your optimism uh, message and feeling, Jim. And uh, I, I think uh, what's really uh, fantastic about this pandemic, and let me use the word fantastic, is that it has shown all of us that uh, we are able to react very quickly and find solutions. And actually all the research efforts, and I've heard, I don't know if it's true or not, that every eight minutes there is uh, a new uh, COVID-19 papers being submitted. So this is really <laughs> fantastic. Uh, uh, then uh, this is allowing to accumulate a body of knowledge that maybe, and hopefully we would not need it for COVID because hopefully we'll get rid of it at some point, but all of this accumulated knowledge actually will serve as a basis to build uh, the future generations of immune therapies and vaccinations. And this is really uh, amazing. So I, I believe we have the short, the mid and the long term but for the midterm, Sarah, for instance, from a practical point of view with your patient, 
What are the things that now, uh, and I think the UK is doing rather well uh, in terms of vaccination and in terms of easing the uh, lockdown, which is great news, and hopefully this will happen across the globe. Uh, so what are the things that actually you will uh, not do anymore as before? Because actually... COVID proved to you that you can do it differently and this is better. Um, I could be really funny here and say, actually come to work. I'd like to work from home more because <laughs> that's one of the positives for me as a nurse um, coming out of the pandemic. We've realized, and I think in a lot of professions that actually home working is possible. You don't have to be going into the office all the time. So I think that is something that many areas will take forward from the pandemic personally from within myeloma um the clinic setting is going to change massively i we will definitely not go back to 100 face-to-face consultations where it was before um our clinics that we have twice a week had 60 and 70 patients in one clinic and 40 patients in another clinic and that will not happen again it will keep we will keep patients on telephone review that are suitable for telephone review the downside of complete telephone review and virtual and keeping people away from the hospital i feel is the actual face-to-face contact that all human beings actually crave and need to to be able to live. Um, and I think there will have to be a really fine balance between just because you're at that stage of your myeloma, you're having a telephone consultation against, actually, I want to come to the hospital. I want to see my doctor. I want to see my nurse for that to be able to carry on. Um, the other thing that I would hope will carry on into the future, and this will depend on um, finances of it, will be uh, medicine delivery at home. So a lot of our patients, obviously, during the pandemic have been having their telephone reviews with the doctors and then their drugs such as lenalidomide, pomalidomide, thalidomides have all been delivered at home from pharmacy through, through private courier systems and that's had a massive change to quality of life for patients because they're not having to sit and wait in pharmacy so they're the two main things that i hope goes forward that's positive from the pandemic fantastic thank you so much and uh, uh, I, I, i can share the same uh, feeling for instance when it comes to telemedicine and phone consultation There are many patients, at least for me, in Paris where, you know, uh, would say, well, okay, if you don't really need to see me, I don't want to spend two hours in the traffic jams, you know, uh, coming to the hospital. So, And this is huge on the quality of life, spending two hours with your grandchildren rather than, you know, struggling mm-hmm. with a traffic jam. It has no price. I think it would be very difficult to assess the value of this. Absolutely. So, I'd like to spend the last uh, uh, few minutes on uh, talking about something where I know you are all very active. Uh, it's not only about patient advocacy group, but you are research advocates. And I would like uh, to hear from all of you uh, to explain to everybody, because I'm not sure everybody is familiar with the concept of being a research advocate for patients, uh, uh, to try to define, to explain this, and uh, to uh, highlight your actions uh, to the wider myeloma uh, community and patient. Cindy? 
Well, I have to give Jim credit because he was the one who told me that I wasn't just a patient advocate, that I was a research advocate. And he told me to make sure that whenever I introduce myself, I introduce myself as a research advocate. And, and to me, I'm a research advocate is that group of patients who enjoy learning the science. They enjoy sitting in the scientific meetings and learning what, what is happening. Even though we're not scientists, I'm a fifth grade teacher, but I, have a ba- I, I was always at Science Geek. So now that I have this understanding of the science and the classes of drugs and how things work, not just for me, but for most patients in general, now I can provide that patient perspective when it comes to developing clinical trials, Um, when it comes to looking at um, an informed consent form. I sit on an IRB. I I read the informed consent forms and I say, this is not inpatient language or this is not what a patient will understand or put a chart in here. Or when we sometimes all of us sit on advisory boards to pharmaceutical companies, we talk about their protocol and what we like and what we don't like and why there needs to be so many bone marrow biopsies. Or just like you said, does dexamethasone have to continue forever and ever and ever? Um, All of us sit on some of the steering committees for the NCI or groups where we look at the research, but we look at it from a patient perspective and we have to be able to be willing to speak out loud, even maybe when our ideas might not go over so well with a group of doctors there. So, yeah. So I think a research advocate first needs to know basic science, what's available, but then live and be part of that patient experience. And one last thing is, as a research advocate, you have to present the global patient perspective. I can't just go in and talk about things that I think are good for me. I have to go in and realize what's happening in the myeloma community and and where the unmet needs are and advocate for that group of myeloma patients who may be out of options or who are are out, or what's the word? not allowed in clinical trials because they don't meet eligibility criteria, that maybe could be changed. So I speak for those people who can't be there to speak for themselves. Fantastic. Jack, your take well, on the message. Cindy certainly uh, uh, provided a very thorough, complete answer to your question. I guess what I would add for me personally, I got involved. Uh, Jim helped me get involved as well, but so did the IMF uh, when they were supported for the first time, I think 15 years ago to bring some patients to ASH, American Society of Hematology Conference. And uh, I was selected to go and I was blown away by the presentation of these clinical trial results and all that went into it. And fortunately, was asked to then join SWOG, and I became part of NCI, and, and I'm part of CIBMTR and Stanford. Uh, all of all of giving me opportunities to, again, provide that patient perspective that Cindy referred to. Um, 
it's imperative for us, even if we're not being treated or on some type of maintenance, it's imperative to keep up with the current research and being able to um, uh, share those results with patients, but also take those factors into consideration when looking at new concepts that might ultimately become uh, trials from the beginning through that process of activating trials and such. So I cherish my role as a, as a patient research advocate and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be one. So Jim, uh, now I know that you are the father uh, <laughs> of uh, this concept of patient research uh, advocate, and we owe you this because this is really amazing. So where, 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 uh, where do you want to take this concept uh, further, actually? Thank you, Mohammed. I'm extremely proud of Jack and Cindy and also Yalik, the other award winner who couldn't be with us today. Um, all of us. And we say really, hello to Yalik. We're missing. Hi, hi Yalik. <laughs> we've all, we've all um, put in so many hours in this and really are committed to it. I, have, I don't have a lot to add to what Cindy and Jack have already mentioned, but I will say that we do act as intermediaries. We represent patients, but we also represent the research. And we try to explain to both of these entities the thoughts of the other entity. As Cindy said, uh, there are things that uh, research might want, such as an extra bone marrow, that we have to tell them that patients will not accept that. Um, and Jack's comment and Cindy's about our input into clinical trials. As, I, as Jack has been on the SWOG, I've been on the Alliance Committee, Myeloma Committee, and my goodness, I've watched clinical trial development take two to three years before a trial ever uh, be, becomes uh, real. Uh, patients don't realize the amount of time and effort that goes into research that, that they're, not even, they're not even a part of, they don't even see. They just see the tip of the iceberg of here's a clinical trial but they have no concept of how much that researchers and cancer research advocates have put into the development of that, of that iceberg. Uh, one thing that Cindy also mentioned is that we are committed to keeping up. We stay current and it's a job of ours. I, I'll bet you every day, there's not a day that all of us don't think or do something uh, related to myeloma research and, and increasing our knowledge base. We are committed to doing that. Unlike other uh, advocates, we don't fundraise. We don't uh, do some of the community um, involvement that maybe other, other advocates do, but cancer research advocates really are committed to the science of, of cancer. Yeah, and this is about dissemination and spreading uh, knowledge. So Sarah, uh, from a nursing perspective, how do you view uh, this uh, uh, active role of the patient when it comes to research? Because it's not only about the research performed by physicians and doctors, but there is also a very important nursing science and research. I think patient input to any trial setup, whether it be a trial setting up looking at 
drugs and how effective drugs are or whether it be a qualitative piece of research that's looking at how patients feel during the pandemic or how patients feel during end of life care things like that it is really important to have patient input at the start of the setup of the trial as Cindy and Jack have said you know they've been, been advocates they're involved in the setup of trials they talk to the clinicians they actually say to the clinicians that's a silly idea um, and you know and Jim's right sometimes some of the trials when they are set up they do ask for a lot of bone marrows and sometimes it needs somebody in the trial setup phase to actually go why do we need that bone marrow just there you know I've only had you know they'll have only had one six months prior is it really important to be doing on that frequently and that is really important and I think one thing that's important about research is also real world data that's coming out after drugs have actually been approved and are being used in and I think then patients should be involved as local hospitals are starting to look at the real world data of drugs and the efficacy of them and how they impact on quality of life because I think Cindy alluded to it not every patient is eligible to go into a clinical trial because sometimes it could be something like their renal function that's too poor to, for them to be able to go on to a, a trial study and that's a big group of patients that's being excluded from these drugs and then all of a sudden they get approved for use in general practice and then they can have those drugs you know how does that then impact on that patient and this is really important so I think the need to be involved in the setup of qualitative quantitative and real world data study sets well thank you very much I really personally feel blessed today having this discussion with all of you uh, uh, I, I, I believe I mean while listening to what has been said uh, it's like actually an orchestra and Every member of the orchestra needs to play uh, uh, the instrument, the right instrument in the right way. And putting all this together will allow to deliver this uh, fabulous uh, uh, symphony. And this is about improving the outcome, uh, improving the survival, and hopefully curing the majority of the multiple myeloma patients and I think uh, uh, I would like to thank you uh, all for participating, for sharing your uh, experience, your thoughts uh, for the future, uh, your current perspectives and future perspectives. But also I'd like uh, to say a word uh, uh, to think that we think about all the patients and their families who suffered and maybe are continuing to suffer during this uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, we uh, think of you, we feel with you, and uh, hopefully uh, things will improve and uh, we can be uh, reunited all together. And uh, uh, wherever you are, please stay safe and uh, keep well. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. Visit VJHemonk.com for cutting-edge updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of all of the latest news in the field of myeloma. Be sure to subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.